Hello and welcome to FIS's Freight and Commodity Podcast and to our special end of year edition where we'll be taking a look back at 2021 and perhaps gaining a little bit of insight into what next year has in store for us. As our end of year special, we have a bumper episode this week with special guests and repeat appearances all giving their unique perspectives on the year. 2021 has been a tempestuous year, one which many had hoped it wouldn't be after the 2020 that much of the world had. It is impossible to talk about the past 12 months without mentioning COVID-19 and its dramatic effect on our way of life, economy and markets. The disruptions that it has caused has wreaked havoc on our usual supply chains, as well as sparking dramatic swings in supply and demand. The start of the year was awash with news stories calling 2021 the year of commodity supercycle. In May, US lumber markets were up 600% from April 2020, copper was rocketing towards all-time highs, and both iron ore futures markets were trading well above the $200 a tonne mark. In the end, it seems the increased volatility that we saw in markets was less a bull market and more the chaos which ensued after the revolving door of lockdowns and openings, with everyone trying to keep up with the changes. With so much going on, I had our MD of strategy, Alex Pereira-Nasio, in to discuss the chaos that was 2021, to try and make a bit more sense of it all. Um, obviously, like you said, it's impossible to talk about 2021 without talking about COVID-19. There was a very real uh, human element to COVID-19, and we, we experienced that personally within FIS. And we know that many of our clients did with friends, families and colleagues, and we'd like to wish uh, everybody... Uh, you know, well, and hopefully they have a, a safer and healthier 2022. Um, you know, you talked about market volatility and you made a good point there. It wasn't so much a, a bull run as just implied chaos. If you look at VIX at the moment, you can see that it's all over the shop and it's it's, it's moving around. And that's, that's a measure that I like to use myself when 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 taking stock of volatility in the market. Um, a, a busy year for, for FIS and a, a busy year for the markets. Uh, you know, we are still facing many challenges uh in developing our U.S. offices and expanding into the U.S., um, Brexit has obviously thrown up its uh, its challenges, and we are progressing uh, at quite good speed with that. With you, so we can continue to service and grow our business into Europe, Asia as well. It's been very difficult with our with our Asian offices. We've not been able to get over to some of our offices for some time, and we know that our staff have been uh, struggling and but persevering as well to continue to service their clients and do the job to the best of their ability. Obviously, now with, with Singapore sort of taking a, a bit more of a view to allow people to travel, we're seeing some of our staff members come back and we're able to get over there soon ourselves as well to, to take measure and to take stock of how, you know, the 2021 has really affected our Asian offices. Um, but, you know, it's also, it, it sounds cynical, but it's thrown up some opportunities the, the last 12 to 18 months. And we have a working group within the company, uh, a new products working group that meets every six to eight weeks and it's allowed us to develop and examine new things and to see where the new opportunities are. Um, that, in turn, has allowed us to hire more and to, to expand going forward. It's also allowed us to take stock of products and markets that, that may suffer in, in the next 12 to 18 months and what we can do to aid them and what we can do to assist our, our, our clients there. Uh, you know, Will we ever see another evergreen? I've got no idea. I, I'd love to be able to predict that. Um, you know, it feels like COVID-19 is becoming part and parcel of life. Every new variant we get, you know, how long will it then take the markets to return to green once a new variant is reported? It feels like less and less time. So whilst we adapt to the chaos and, and sort of not embrace it, but just mould our business models around it, um, it, it's very difficult to predict what will happen over the next year. And I feel it's unlikely that 
we may we may see these sort of things again. I believe there's a there's a saying in or a Chinese proverb which is "May you live in interesting times," and we certainly have over the last year and a half. And I'm not sure that I want to live in interesting times for over the next eighteen or twenty four months. If there's someone who knows a bit about a wild year it has been, then that is Michelle Visebockman, markets editor and energy commodities analyst at Lloyd's List. This is what she had to say about the year. Well, it's been crazier than ever, crazier than 2008. And I was thinking that if shipping was like a movie, it would be a James James Bond psychological thriller with a plot twist against the backdrop of a pestilence taking over the planet because you've got forces of good and evil, Russia versus the US, East versus West, China versus the US. You've got fatal drone attacks in the Middle East Gulf. You have geopolitical tension. You've got energy shortfalls. It's just been one crisis after another. And in terms of um, shipping with tankers, the tanker market has been at the lowest Rates have been at the lowest level in three decades over the third quarter. You have the container market absolutely exploding into life. You have dry bulk doing you know, unprecedented volatility, unexpected um, volatility in many cases. You've got port congestion. You've got it has it, just been one plot twist after another. So never a dull day. I asked her about the prediction of higher volatility and freight rates for a sustained period in the future and what she thought about that. You know what? I I don't think you can actually forecast beyond six months at the moment. And even then, we've got the Omicron variant coming in, which has completely tipped up the oil market in the last two weeks. Oil prices dipped 20%. Fresh volatility has been injected into the market We know that it's going to affect crew changes for physical ships worldwide. We know that it's going to impact the energy markets, which will trickle down to shipping. Who knows what is going to come next? It it really is so uncertain that it's impossible to to say. Um, If you just look at at some of the things uh, on a serious note, you you have serious dry bulk congestion in China, which is partly as a result of the really strict quarantine and immigration restrictions, but also early in this year, because of um, fiscal stimulus, the the increase in manufacturing, we now see that that heading off. You've got the oil cartel, which is now controlling the supply of oil into the market, which has implications for the tanker sector. You have Russia diminishing energy gas supplies to, to Europe, which has completely engulf the LNG market, we have rates above $400,000 per day for the Australia-Japan route at, at one at one stage, which is like 3,600% higher than what they were in March. My goodness. And then, of course, we have to mention the ever-given uh, blockage of the Suez Canal, which made the entire world wake up to the importance of, finally, of shipping to the, to the global supply chain. Um, We had the US go on a massive consumption binge that has record numbers of container ships in log log jammed in on the US West Coast as we speak. Um, Just just chaos, craziness. You know, I I think I said at the end of last year that, you know, the, the market was more bipolar because you had the first half, you know, seriously good for for the tanker market. The second half was terrible. But now it's 
completely schizophrenic. In my 25 years of covering shipping, I have never been rung up and and contacted by so many journalists around the world who all of a sudden thought, oh God, we know nothing about this. And this secret shadowy world of shipping all of a sudden was thrust onto the front page, front pages of newspapers and 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 news channels worldwide. And everybody had to think about how they got the toasters, how they, you know, where where everything came from. And I mean it, it's not a, a it's a bad thing to happen, but in terms of of polishing and showcasing shipping, it, it was a very good thing. I put the question to her whether 2021 actually lived up to its given name of the year of the commodity supercycle. Well, I, I don't think so. I mean, if we look at the end of the year, we have iron ore prices down on lower demand in China because of the their the manufacturing and steel figures have plunged. Um, Coal prices did surge, but a lot of that was around the geopolitics that surrounded their decision not to take any more coke and coal from Australia. If you look at crude oil imports, uh, third quarter imports from China were down, I think, about 13%, and that was because of high oil prices. Um, So I I, I think we're seeing growth, but we're not seeing the crazy appetite that I remember reporting in 2005, 2006, 2007. I think many people that that sort of tried to put this super cycle tag probably weren't around 13 or 14 years ago when there was a real super cycle. And finally, we heard what her highlight moment from 2021 was. Well, that's easy. That's that's the ever given, the ever given meme, I guess, of the of the the cranes trying to get this huge ship that was wedged in the Suez Canal, you know, afloat and and on its way. So I think 300 ships at, at the peak could could actually sail through. And we put together some figures um, at here at Lloyd's List and we realised that every single day, $9.6 billion in trade goes through the Suez Canal. And I think that's quite a sobering thought of the importance of shipping. Another person who has had a great view of commodities across this year was Ed Hutton, our senior technical analyst here at FIS. This is what he had to say. Well, I think um, one of the uh, most important things that um, we've been looking at the year we've seen is the trending environment of the markets. Um, we know that commodity markets have a have a great ability to show these long time long period trends, but when we've seen the freight market in recent years. It's all been seasonality. We've seen these strong moves in the capes where we might see twenty twenty five thousand dollars moves and then gone. You know, the market collapses in, in a matter of days. Um, and this has given us, you know, this preconceived idea of where we think the market's going to go rather than actually listening to what price is telling us. We saw very early on in the year some strong prices coming in after after last year's uh, move. And what we had very early on was an open interest build. So not only was price moving higher, and there is a systemic risk in the market always to the upside in freight, um, what we were seeing was this open interest build that was actually telling us people were buying the futures and they were holding the futures rather than buying the futures and closing the futures or letting them expire quickly. There was just a continuous open interest build going along with the market, which was telling us there was constantly fresh money moving into it. And I think that's really important to uh, to focus on, you know, let the market tell you where it's going, going. 
um, these trends have been very, very, very strong and very interesting in the sense of you've got your daily trend on one hand and you've got your weekly trend. So you've got an, almost a retail trend and an investor trend. And it's very important to pay attention to both of these. Um, when you see this daily trend ending, it's very, very, very easy to go and think, right, we're going into a bear market. But quite often we're going into an investor trend support where the long term weekly moving averages do tell you where investors are getting in the market. And we've been hit. We hit those levels and the market rallied very strongly. Back in June, we got down to a low of twenty seven, three, seven, five in the capes. Um, and that was just above a multiple of longer term moving averages on the weekly chart. The market immediately pushed up to forty four, five hundred, came back down. The trend was nice and stable. We went down to 31,000, back up to 48,000, and then eventually up to 66,000 on the rolling front month. The, the futures did go higher than that, um, but not not much. Um, and that, that was a very, very important thing to watch because then we saw the market going from a daily perspective, going back into this bear move. But what was very different was how these, the market was reacting on the weekly trend, your short period EMA, EMAs, immediately compressed because the price move down was so aggressive and that was telling you that something's changed in the market recent sell-offs have been you know um maybe 10 15 and all of a sudden we've gone from 66,000 to 40,000 in effectively three weeks there was a systematic change in the market um and this is this has been a key thing that we've been seeing all the way through there is no better place to start a review of the commodity markets this year than with freight and more specifically with the dry freight market because of the year that it has had. FFA Futures posted some 2.4 million lots, up 67% year on year, and we have seen some crazy volatility. Kerry Deal, FIS's Head of Business Development, gave us his view of the year in freight. Well, dry freight, and capes in particular, are always volatile, right? But if anyone, anyone had told me uh, that we would see the range we did in 2021, even a year ago, I would have said they were absolutely crazy. And what we've seen is a real confluence of factors, a lot of which we've discussed, you know, many of which we've discussed on this podcast repeatedly. Um, you know, we've discussed the factor uh, from container rates hitting absolutely record levels that lead to people switching from containerization to using smaller bulk carriers. What this did was push the market upwards from the bottom, you know, giving support to those handies and then ultimately to the Supras, which bled over even arguably into support for the Panamaxes. Um, in the first half of the year, we saw a stronger than expected Chinese rebound. But then in Q4, we saw much stronger headwinds than we expected, including that global energy crunch, stringent pollution control measures in China, and more broadly, a major shift in the paradigm of Chinese development. I think this might be the key factor. That is to say, you know, we seem to be moving away from a borrow it and build it, uh, you know, on speculative demand basis uh, in China in terms of property development um, and construction and even infrastructure development uh, to a more balanced market that needs to be driven by actual demand and that likely will be, uh, you know, of a magnitude slower in terms of property construction, but also based slightly less on debt or at least with slightly less government support. You know, that's important. Um, you've also got a low order book on the, on the positive side in terms of rates. That order book is being kept very low, especially on the capes due to a young average fleet age. But more importantly, 
deep uncertainty over questions on what future fuels we'll be using. In other words, who will order a new building vessel if you don't know what fuel you'll be using to power that vessel? You then outlined the reasons for why we've had such record volumes this year. Yeah, I mean, the volumes have been absolutely incredible this year. Um, that's across every size. Uh, you know, we've seen overall dry FFA volumes uh, traded, jumping by, I believe, over 60% year on year. Why has that happened this year? I mean, I think the, the movement of the market explains just about everything. People have seen the need to hedge. From our perspective, what we have seen is a large jump in the size and scale of hedging, both from existing participants, but also from new physical participants who are looking for cover. That's been especially clear on the supermaxes, which have grown just tremendously this year in terms of liquidity, um, and also in terms of supermax options, which have come out of nowhere to become one of the most useful and popular tools that, uh, that people are using today uh, to, to gain cover. I also asked him what he thought about the prediction of higher volatility and higher rates for the near future. Yeah, you know, I think that in terms of volatility, we're certainly going to see a continuation of very high volatility in the coming year. Um, I don't know in terms of rates if we're going to see rates that are as high as they recently have been, or certainly not at the heights that we saw in 2021. In terms of volatility, you've got to remember none of the factors that I mentioned before have gone away, right? Um, there's still deep uncertainty about future fuel usage and uh, what types of engines people should be ordering in new buildings. That is still putting a damper on the order book. Um, and we still have serious questions over the direction of the Chinese property market uh, in terms of its pattern of development. As I said, my view is we may be moving away from the previous paradigm of the last 25 years, but that remains to be seen. And what effect will that actually have on steel production, which is, of course, what drives the Cape market primarily in terms of iron ore demand into China. So, I mean, the volatility is here to stay. Lastly, I think, you know, we're going to continue to see for at least another year this pattern of one region of the globe moving into some kind of lockdown or more restricted phase due to COVID, unfortunately, and um, while other regions may be perfectly open. And so that means the supply chains will continue to be quite disconnected. I think that's not going to help relieve any of the pressure on containers necessarily. And, uh, and so I think, you know, that will add to the volatility for sure. We also took a look into the crystal ball and what the future holds for the dry freight market. Well, what does the future hold? I mean, uh, if I knew that, I would be a very, very wealthy man, wouldn't I? Um, and so I guess if you put a gun to my head, I believe I had said a few weeks ago that I thought the Cape size market would average somewhere in the region of thirty dollars to $50,000 a year on the 5TC average during 2022. Uh, my view now is probably slightly lower that will come in on the lower end of that range. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it still averages around $30,000, uh, but with a lot of volatility during 2022. Um, the Panamax is a bit lower, I would say fifteen dollars to $20,000 um, for most of the year. Um, so, you know, I, I've seen people arguing that because of the headwinds we're seeing in the Chinese property market, etc., this should be even lower. Uh, I'm not yet convinced at that. The order book is still quite low. Um, and of course, remember, if we see an extended period of low rates, you're going to see a lot of slow steaming, particularly on the capes. That would remove and affect quite a few vessels from the market. So, yeah, 30000 on the capes, a bit less on the Panamax, maybe 20000 on the Panamax as an average rate with extreme volatility. There we go. Let's see what happens.
It's been a busy year for Container Freight, and FIS broker Peter Stanion joined me to explain what's been happening. Uh, so the container market has been uh, been huge this year. So hitting all the um, all the local and uh, regional and national news networks, even being featured in the New Yorker. Um, so the New New Yorker's got a got a headline piece of um, of Father Christmas trying to uh, reel in a container ship. The index we've been focusing on the Baltics um, FBX Container Index being mentioned by the White House um, in in line with some of the stuff that's going on there where they're trying to uh, uh, bring the ports into into heel to try and alleviate some of the congestions, but it's not really working um, because we all know how the how the market's been developing over the past uh, past year or so. Uh, but from our side, it's been it's been huge to the point where we're able to uh, to uh, have uh, the aspirations to uh, launch a new contract in Q1, so a listed container future, which should open up the market to uh, all of the players we've been speaking to, um, and really quite a diverse and quite exciting market to get involved in. Um, just a few stats. So the main route. That's usually the benchmark of everything going on in the container world is um, FBX01. So that's China to North America, West Coast. And you would have seen headlines of congestion into Long Beach um, with um, the level of congestion breaching something like 80 container ships on the western seaboard. Um, that rising since Q2 last year up 722%, um, which is a massive move but not even the biggest move in the market. Uh, the Asia-Europe route, so FBX11, moved up 748% since Q2 last year. And Q2 was sort of the, the turning point in the market where uh, the US and the European government started putting loads of uh, money into people's pockets through furlough and the US actually directly ingesting cash into uh, injecting cash into people into people's pockets and then spending stuff on uh, you know pelotons and all sorts of things moving across from China um, and now the forward market is equally uncertain so really good timing for us to get involved uh, a lot of the uh, the buy side of the market are very worried about locking in their rates um, and it looks like the only way they can realistically lock in you know quarterly or annual rates will be via a futures contract so the timing is really, really opportune. And I think uh, if you were looking at this market, uh, any, way, any shape or form, or you've been listening to the podcast we put out throughout the year, uh, now now is the time to, uh, to get in touch with us and, um, and move forward with this because we'll be pushing forward quite rapidly over the next uh, couple of months. So very, very exciting time from our side of things. Um, and really driving that market forward will be our mission for 2022 um, after we get this aspiration to uh, to list the agreement. To round off the freight markets, we had Alex MacArthur in to overview the tanker FFA market for 2021. Due to so much uncertainty in the tanker markets, we have seen a big increase in the use of tanker FFAs, not just by owners and charterers, but now more financial institutions. Um, obviously, in 2020, with uh, the huge amount of uncertainty, we saw over 600 million uh, tonnes traded, up from 460 million tonnes traded in 2019. Um, and then with this year, we've seen uh, nearly 500 million tonnes traded year to date um, with owners and charterers both hedging and speculating within the tanker market. Obviously, it's been a tough year for tankers with COVID continuing to dampen global fuel demand with lockdowns, preventing air travel, having a, few, a huge effect on jet fuel deliveries. Uh, the best example of this has been on TD3C, which is the uh, the main Baltic indicator for the VLCC market and the best 
best representative of the crude oil and tanker market as a whole, uh, with nearly 275 million tonnes traded this year. With the year starting poorly, TD3C hit lows of world scale 28 this year, which um, is the lowest that's been seen in some time. That was in Q1. And then throughout the year, we saw marginal improvements through Q2 and Q3, with um, TD3C hitting year highs at uh, world scale 46 um, just at the start of Q4. Uh, in line with this, we saw Cal 22 continuing to trade in its downward trend as expected global recovery seemed to be pushed back further and further. In line with this, we saw Cal 22 continue to improve. Uh, Cal 23 continued to improve, sorry. Um, both trading higher uh, in line with um, spot hitting its highest at the start of Q4. It was all looking quite positive um, until sort of two weeks ago. And then we saw European numbers and the discovery of the Omicron variant wiping out these gains within 48 hours. Uh, it's the largest largest two days of trading we saw um, this year with 9 million tonnes being traded within 48 hours. As a result, we saw Cal22 coming off over a dollar from, from its price the week uh, before. Cal23 and Cal24 both saw $2 knocked off their prices um, with TD3 now currently trading at Wells Girl 40 in the spot market. Uh, this is in comparison to TC2 and TC5, which are uh, way less affected by the price of Brent and economic crisis, with movements still being me need to be made out of the East and uh, in the West. TC2 now in backwardation, with the spot market trading higher due to ice vessel demand. Due to poor uh, cold weather, um, ice vessels are needed to load from Northwest Europe, which has caused the spot, spot market to spike, whereas optimism is still dampened through tc2 uh through cal 22 and cal 23 so uh, they're still trading relatively flat moving on to the ferrous markets if there was a market that epitomized the craziness that was 2021 then it has to be iron ore regularly we reported on this podcast weekly moves of 20 percent week after week so i asked peter hannah from fast markets about his take on the market this year well, yeah, Chris, I think if you look up volatility in the dictionary, they should perhaps show you the uh, 2021 iron ore price as uh, Exhibit A. It was indeed a year for the record books. Um, we saw the 62% FE price hit an all-time high in May of $237 a tonne before falling at the fastest rate since the global financial crash to the low 90s by mid-September. November saw it dip even further into the high 80s, um, but we are now seeing a little bit of a recovery being staged as uh, we're running into the year end comfortably above the $100 per ton mark. My take on the year um, is essentially that the record high prices during the first half reflected the fact that steel demand and steel output in China were running incredibly hot uh, due to the post-COVID stimulus. And let's tell it like it is. Beijing did not like those high iron ore prices. So we then saw what amounted to a, a very managed intervention with huge arbitrary curbs imposed on Chinese steel output that, as expected, hit iron ore demand. There were, of course, other coinciding drivers for that policy too, um, including the um, effort to reduce, pr reduce pollution ahead of the COP26 climate conference and Winter Olympics, as well as looking to cool down the property sector amid the uh, financial issues of certain real estate developers. But I do believe personally that the, uh, the main concern was around balance of trade and particularly 
the uh, geopolitically uncomfortable fact that Australia was benefiting so much from those high iron ore prices. I asked him about production curbs and concerns about the Chinese construction market and whether these were going to be the areas which dictated the market next year. Absolutely. I think it's all about those factors for the time being, as those are the elements that uh, pulled the rug out from underneath iron ore prices in the second half of this year. Do remember, though, that this is uh, or that these these interventions um, were all essentially artificial. Um, steel margins are still pretty healthy. Um, so by rights, a reversion to more organic market dynamics should start to see these steel curbs uh, lifted at some stage, at least to a, an extent. The bare case to that scenario, I guess, though, if I were to give one, would be if there turns out to be um, a more chronic malaise in China's property sector, um, as that has been by far and away the biggest driver of steel demand in recent years. Asked him what 2022 was going to be looking like in the iron ore market. Well, um, I don't really see a clear way out of this depressed holding pattern that we're in um, until at least um, after post after Chinese New Year and post the Winter Olympics at the end of February. After that, though, a lot of people do seem to be anticipating a degree of lifting of these steel output curbs, and along with that, some potential upside for iron ore. I would be hesitant to, to call the exact timing, um, but I do think that the arbitrary way in which demand has been cut here um, could give way to a decent recovery if and when policy shifts to favour growth again. And we are seeing, I think, the, the, the green shoots of that coming with some more dovish notes being struck by the Chinese leadership um, in recent days. The key thing to remember, though, is that uh, this is a market where policy decisions made around a table in Beijing are the most significant driver of fortunes. That means that I think we should continue to expect both volatility and unpredictability in prices. And it really reinforces the need for anyone involved um, in this market to have an effective risk management strategy. Further out, um, I have been saying, and I still believe that um, the short-term pain of this pullback in prices could actually give way to um, some longer-term gain for iron ore producers, as it will likely limit the supply response that we would have seen um, ratchet up if prices had stayed around $200, uh, which for a commodity that can be produced for a few tens of dollars a ton is, of course, structurally unsustainable. The last point I'd make is that grade will continue to be an all-important um, factor when it comes to price realization. Even throughout this price crash, we've seen higher-grade products hold on to stronger-than-average premiums and lower-grade products, by contrast, being very heavily discounted. The push to decarbonize the global steel industry is a driver that's here to stay and will only get stronger. And whether we're talking about um, optimizing existing blast furnaces for lower emissions production or maybe further into the future, a more structural shift towards low carbon iron, iron making technologies. Both of these rely on the consumption of high grade ores. Moving on to coal, Dave Powell, our head of Coking Coal, outlined the movers and shakers in this key steel making commodity. Well, I think I think across the FIS uh, bulk products where the, the, the biggest mover in terms of price um, I mean, like like most of the commodities, it's been there's been sort of a perfect storm building up. Uh, but at the start of the year, we 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 were very much at the at the low. In fact, December last year settled at a, at the 2020 low of 101.40. 
more like reasons uh, for that was on on the back of uh, you know, demand being stripped out of the market due to COVID in 2020. We also had uh, the the sort of unofficial China ban on Australian coal imports. That was for thermal and for met coal. Um, so there there had been a rally in general commodity prices during the first half of the year. But whilst Cohen Coal tried a couple of times, uh, especially around sort of um, Jan February time. It ultimately sort of failed and kept resetting back into this sort of 100, 110 index range. Um, but uh, finally, with uh, with China absorbing so much of the US, Canadian and and um, Russian coal available, we saw that the rest of the world had to turn to what excess Australian tons were around. Uh, and there also had been uh, cutbacks put, put in place uh, on, on the mining side uh, for Q3. So once we got out of Q2, we suddenly saw a huge surge and we sort of created this perfect storm where demand kept increasing, supply couldn't catch up. Um, you know, d- demand from the steel sector had picked up and we saw a gain of about 265%, uh, which hasn't seen, been seen before in any year previously, even even back in sort of 2016-17, uh, uh, which saw big moves. And so we, we saw um, November settle... Uh, at 364 um so so and that that sort of has has continued but um with uh, with futures also uh getting on the back of that futures volumes had started to sort of dip a bit the first half of the year compared to 2020 which has been a very strong year in terms of volumes but we saw a big a big move in q3 as people sort of realized what was going on and 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 wanted to get involved even at you know, we we thought the market might sort of test 170, 180, and then we broke through 200. We didn't stop. We went to 300, and then futures actually got as high as 400 for uh, for sort of um, for the sort of November and December contracts. Even Q1 futures got to a high of about 325. Um, we actually had um, a, a correction in during November where where the index dropped uh, close to 25 percent. From the start of month to the end of the month, um, and this is mainly 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 driven by sentiment rather than any sort of change in the physical space. A sentiment driven on the futures, uh, with 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 sort of steel prices uh, coming off a touch, but also obviously China turning much more much more bearish. But um, it seems we've come off a bit too much, and uh, and with some heavy rain in Queensland, we've now, we've now sort of back up ten percent again. And as as you know, this week we've, we're you know we're already seeing a, a Q1 trading over two hundred and eighty, which is a which you know which is a a, a, you know, a a huge move from where we were sort of about ten days ago when we dropped down into the two thirties. So, um, like like most products, uh, we've got a lot of uh, potential for the market to move plus or minus fifty dollars just in just just by the end of the year, uh, even more it could uh, and. We're expecting, you know, a volatile end of the year and and a pretty volatile Q1. Um, usually, we would see, um, you know, usually, you know, Q1 is strong anyway, but on the back of weather, and and we're seeing some some weather impact right now. But often, often the fact sort of outweighs the the the, the forecast, and we often see a bit of a sell off in Q1. So, but um, this has been anticipated already in q4 and it hasn't happened so uh, question marks over whether that whether that's going to happen um 
in terms of uh, in terms of further further out on the curve, uh, I would say, you know, when we had you know the long term price has always sort of settled within this range of about one hundred and forty to one hundred and sixty, uh, and then during the uh, the sort of low of uh, the second half of twenty twenty and early twenty one, and that 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 market started to drop and. You know, people were trading the the deferred Cal contracts as low as I think we got sort of we saw Cal twenty two trade back in twenty twenty sort of in the hundred and thirties, um, and previously, um, you know, the, the the high prices hadn't really broken even when we'd been spot well over two hundred. We hadn't seen the, the back end trade above one sixty one seventy, but right now we've seen a Cal twenty three um, trading above one eighty. And it's looking like it's getting close to two hundred now. So we, we've actually seen a shift in the uh, in the long term price as well. So it's probably a very good time for any uh, for for hedging, um, either from the buy side or the sell side, given where steel prices are and given where the sort of historical cone coal prices have been. Moving to the metal markets, we start with steel with Rob Belcher, our steel broker extraordinaire, and first of all, the U.S. steel markets. Yeah, US, great place to begin. Uh, this year, the US hot-rolled core market has been a real story of demand outstripping supply. Prices were near all-time highs at the start of this year, but that didn't stop them rising from almost 100 tonnes a month into late summer. Uh, buyers were left scrambling to find supply to replenish depleted inventories through the first half of the year. Um, you know, we, sh- we shattered 2008 all-time highs. Uh, US HRC prices fell just short of surpassing $2,000 a tonne. Uh, and peaked around 1960 in September. Uh, the runaway domestic pricing opened up the widest gap to international prices most likely ever recorded and opened up the most active import market in the last few years. Um, as the year comes to a close, uh, buyers that were so desperate to get supply early on are now selling whatever isn't bolted down to avoid carrying higher price inventory into 2022. Uh, domestic mills have seen their lead times drop from nearly 10 weeks at the start of the year to just over four weeks, according to the last Platts lead time data. Uh, so now with backlogs depleted uh, and more capacity set to finally come online, it becomes a question if demand will rebound enough at the start of the year to fill order books and to avoid a massive correction in prices. He continued, giving an outline of European markets. I mean, let's switch to this side of the pond on the northwest European hot rolled coil. Uh, prices continued to slide from recent highs in November uh, as mills competed for business to a greater extent in response to rising stocks and lower apparent demand. Um, semiconductor availability remains an issue for the supply chain, although some suggest there might be a loosening of supply from the second quarter. But demand in other integral sectors, such as construction, has all has also reduced, partly also in response to supply chain issues and component shortages. Uh, onto service centres, you know, stocks have risen uh, on rising imports, uh, and as mills have been able to catch up on their backlog, backlogs. At the same time, the lack of automotive callouts means there is a surplus commodity-grade spot material. Uh, there's still a wide range of prices in the market, with buy and sell side participants reporting deals between €900 Euros a tonne and €970 Euros a tonne for various producers. Uh, liquidity has clearly increased this year, uh, perhaps as some buyers sense the market is close to troughing. Um, on the CME Group's North European HRC futures contract, circa 32,000 tonnes traded in November, and that's up 94% from less than 17,000 tonnes in October. 
Moving on to base metals, we had Nick McClements in for a chat about these crucial metal markets. Uh, I'd say generally the base metals have benefited from easing monetary policy from the main players, China, US, Europe, uh, but also been buoyed by supply shocks. In 2021, we've also seen the return of the ring in a role slightly different than it was pre-pandemic, with closing prices still being set electronically. This year, the market has been hugely impacted by power shocks and smelters curtailing production on soaring energy costs. Tight supply has also been a theme this year, and we've seen huge backwardations in cash to threes, um, with it trading around $1,100 premium over three months. I mean, at the start of the year, I think everyone bought into the bullish sentiment in the first half, which drove copper price in particular to all-time highs of around $10,750 a tonne. Um, but many of the big banks have scaled back their bullish forecasts, with some even seeing lower prices in 2022. But uh, inflation still remains a theme um, that can keep a bit of a floor under the market, I'd say, for the for the foreseeable. I'd say there's a, probably a bit of a battle between fighting inflation from central banks and the continued electric vehicle slash electrical ele- electrification theme. Um, and tight supply will also remain a bit of a theme throughout the throughout the year and into next year. Um, perhaps supply might become more readily available as the world learns to live with COVID, but um, it remains to be seen if it's enough to keep up with demand, especially for nickel, copper and uh, the EV battery metals. Continuing on the metals front, Ali Premiums are next and Jack Nathan. Uh, for the premiums, the story has been one of physical tightness, really, for most of the year. Uh, contracts hitting multi-year highs. Scarcity of underlying materials has driven prices up, particularly in Rotterdam. Freight issues have deeper exacerbated the situation and meant replacement costs were high. Uh, despite this, with backward spreads on the enemy over the last few months, we've seen an end-of-year sell-off that's pushed trading levels down. The euros were the first to fall, with the Midwest following shortly after. The Japanese has traded sporadically, but has enjoyed increased liquidity approaching the end of the year, particularly the Cal 22 strip. Prices remain elevated compared to this time last year, with expectations that next year we'll see a deficit between supply and demand. He also gave his view on battery metals markets, uh, a new product here at FIS this year. Thrilling year to be involved in the battery space. Uh, We started the year with virtually no futures market whatsoever, and prices under pressure. We are ending the year with high prices across our curve, and a rapidly developing futures market with thousands of tons of traded contracts. The cobalt market is a fascinating space to be in currently with huge demand from the EV sector amid the move away from legacy internal combustion engines. Supply issues, COVID and decreasing inventory are keeping prices supported currently. On the lithium side, carbonate and hydroxide has been tight globally, driving up the spot and our curve. Demand for these materials is huge and miners at cut production initially are now powering up the machines to meet supply. The futures market on this contract continues to grow, um, and I'm confident we will see this mature. I return back to Peter from Fast Markets to hear his view on the battery metals markets. Yeah, we've been really encouraged by the uptake of these new contracts in their first year of listing. Cobalt on the CME has seen particularly strong activity with a total open interest currently standing at over 3,000 lots, one lot being equivalent to one tonne. Um, and trade extending out as far as uh, three years into the future. 
lithium hydroxide has seen a, has been a little bit of a, a slower starter, but we have still seen a handful of trades in the months since launch. Um, and just this week, actually, we saw the first quarterly strip trade for uh, Q2 next year at $39 a kilo, which uh, considering spot is currently sitting at $31, represents some real uh, money where mouth is anticipation of the lithium shortage intensifying into next year. I asked him what impact the green revolution is going to have. Yeah, it's worth appreciating there's been a demand for metals like lithium and cobalt from the battery sector for many decades. But it's historically mainly been from the consumer electronics markets. The paradigm shift that we're seeing right now is the revolution in electric vehicles and to a slightly lesser extent, stationary energy storage as well. In the International Energy Agency's sustainable development scenario, the demand for EV batteries is set to grow by around 40 times over the two decades um, from 2020 to 2040 while demand for energy storage system batteries, uh, they think is set to grow by around 25 times. How that translates to growth rates for battery raw material demand largely depends on how trends evolve in battery battery chemistries. Um, But the IEA have as their base case scenario, battery sector demand for lithium growing by 43 times in that 20 years from uh, 2020 to 2040. Nickel by 41 times, graphite by 25 times, and cobalt by 21 times. So the electrification revolution that you you mentioned in that question is clearly uh, then going to be transformative for these battery metals markets, hugely increasing their size and significance to the, the global economy. It's been an exhilarating year for the fertilizer markets, so I had to talk to Andrew Manor to understand more. Yeah, 2021 has definitely been one of the most exciting um, and volatile years in, in fertilizer markets of late. Um, I think actually Arab Gulf Urea stands at the, the top of the leaderboard of the biggest market winners um, of products we cover here at FIS. It's up over 250% uh, on the start of the year and it looks set to claim the title if uh, things stay the way they are. Asking what's been driving these price movements. So I've seen everything from extreme weather uh, events causing gas diversions and, and production shutdowns you know, early in in the, uh, in the year in the US when we had the extreme cold in, in Texas in particular. Um, we've also seen things like multi-year highs in grain prices driving from the demand side with the economics farmers being able to afford uh, to pay a lot higher for, for fertilisers. And I guess the big one in the last sort of Q3, Q4 has been the, the gas crisis in, in Europe, which has dr- driven further production cuts and, and supply shortages there. On the back of all this, we've seen government you know, step in and intervene in different markets. In UAN and phosphates throughout the year, we've seen, um, you know, countervailing and anti-dumping duties uh, been, been applied on, on products going into the, into the United States. And then, you know, from some of the exporting countries, we've seen controls on, on exports from China, Russia and Egypt, which has is, which is further tightened the supply on that side of things. And then I guess on the demand side, in particular urea, which everyone watches, um, we've seen a willingness from the world's largest importer in India to uh, to basically pay whatever price is necessary to secure products. So on the back of that as well, we've seen some um, some questionable purchasing tactics um, on their behalf further sort of fuel this bull market. But most interestingly, we had Andrew's view on what the future will look like. 
Yeah, I think um, the the easiest answer there is probably that we'll see elevated levels of volatility. I think a, a big issue if, you know, or, or what the, the fertilizer market will be watching is as the world decarbonizes and transitions away from fossil fuels, I think we'll continue to see um, high levels of volatility in energy markets um, and natural gas in particular. So as a feedstock for, for fertilizers, this should yeah, obviously lead to increased levels of volatility in, in fertilizer markets and I guess therefore increasing the importance of, uh, of our clients to manage their price exposure. After a wild year in 2020 with negative oil prices and the largest price collapse in cruise history, I asked Ricky Foreman whether this year was more about the market's recovery. Um, yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. Um, we've seen an overall increase in the demand really as a result of the um, restrictions being lifted on international travel um you know the the business world seems to have got back up and running again uh, this has been reflected in um the increased demand for the jet fuel and you can see this quite clearly across the airline industries um the situation with the covid really took out um you know massive massive uh, levels of demand um in the oil market um and really i think the fact that these restrictions have just been lifted, um, a lot of the um, countries have done well with the vaccination programs. Um, we've started to see the international travel increase again, and this is where the additional demand is coming from. He also gave us a view on the main points from the shipping fuel oil markets. Well, I think obviously there's quite a close uh, correlation between the fuel oils and what happens on the on the Brent and the Brent market anyway. Um, but there has also been um, other issues in play that have impacted uh, the markets, um, such as the lack of available products um, due to shutdowns, which were impacted uh, because of the COVID situation, um, various uh, port congestions. Um, and as a result, um, that's put a little bit of a squeeze on the market um, whilst the demand has been relatively stable. So as a result of that, we've seen prices tick up. Um, we've also had various reports of re- refineries being shut down in, in, in Asia uh, and production levels um, being lower there as a result, which again has had the uh, the economic impact of um, you know squeezing the market. So I think when you throw all of those factors into the mix, um, it gives you um, quite a clear picture as to why the the fuel oils have uh, have been rising. We also had a discussion on the high five spread. That's the difference between very low sulfur fuel oil and high sulfur fuel oil, sometimes called the scrubber spread. Yeah, I mean the, I mean since the middle of October, really the the scrubber the scrubber spread has been stable between one hundred and twenty five and one hundred and fifty dollars, um, but there was a lot of volatility um, prior to that. Um, it, there were again a, a number of factors involved um, w- with this. The uh, record high gas prices uh, across Europe at the time saw uh, quite a significant shift away uh, from from using gas and and looking at the high sulphur fuels as a result. Therefore, it pushed the prices up of the high sulphur because there was an unexpected levels of demand there. Um, And again, obviously, there wasn't enough being produced. So the prices on the high sulphur fuel oil really pushed up. And as a result, it, it squeezed the it narrowed the spread. Uh, for the high five, so it wasn't it wasn't so much that uh, we were seeing a lot of strength for the for the point five fuels. It was more of a case that the high sulfur fuel oils uh, were being um, you know used more, and that's where we saw the demand. And of course, I asked him his opinion on where prices are going to go next year. Um, well, again, if if you look at um, 
what the analysts and the banks um, and just the, the general market is saying um, heading into next year. Uh, interestingly, uh, OPEC Plus are expecting a little bit of a surplus in Q1, um, just as production is expected to outpace uh, demand. But this does seem to be um, their projection only for the Q1 period, uh, where they are estimating about uh, 900,000 barrels um, will be a surplus for that for that period. Um Interestingly, though, if you look at the EIA data, um, their prediction for 21 was um, around just under 97 million barrels per day. Um, Their estimations going into 22 is putting that up um, over another 3 million barrels. So they do expect demand to be floating around the 100 million barrels per day mark. Um, If you look at that in conjunction with what the banks are expecting for uh, for 2022, they're going with average prices f- uh, of around $85 a barrel. Um, we're currently trading today at around $75 a barrel. Um, so obviously there's, there's room to the upside there. I think the only things that we need to really mention about going into next year is obviously the caveat of any new uh, COVID strains. Um, we've seen massive volatility towards the back end of November and the beginning of December as a result of the the new variant that came to market. Um, I think initially there was a massive market overreaction where we saw a 10% drop on the day uh, on the 26th of November. Um, Brent crashed down from 81 to 72. Um, We then saw a further dip uh, on the 2nd of December as a result of OPEC um, continuing their stance to increase production by 400,000 barrels a day heading into the new year. Um, this play by OPEC, I think, took the market a little bit by surprise um, when there was an expectation that they might, you know, um, hold back on these increases because of the new, um, uh, you know, uh, COVID situation at the time. So I think for me, these are still going to be the two biggest, um, you know, uh, factors that we need to keep an eye on going into next year. It's what's going to happen with COVID. Um, what's the the main play going to be by OPEC? And unfortunately, um, none of us are going to know that until, you know, the time comes. If there was a year for carbon emissions markets, the winner would be 2021. As the new kid on the block, it really has taken off as a market. Theo, our podcast regular, told us more about it. Indeed, mate, like the carbon markets are the new kid on the block and they're here to stay, it seems. Uh, This year, uh, carbon, especially the EUA market, has shot up and uh, just today is actually trading at an all-time high at 88.45 euros per tonne. And that's the December 21 contract, which is expiring very shortly. And the December 22 contract is in Contango at 89 89 euros a tonne. It seems like... The market is just extremely bullish um, for many fundamental reasons. Uh, I mean, the connection between the uh, carbon market and the energy markets is is very, very highly correlated. And we're seeing now the gas markets in uh, Europe, uh, they're trading the TTF, which is the the Dutch contract, is trading today at 102 euros per megawatt hour, which is actually quite huge. Now, there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, There is is that tension from uh, Russia and the Ukraine, that's uh, having that effect. Uh, there's also Norway's fields have been um, there's been unplanned outages and uh, capacity gas capacity in Europe currently stands at 62% capacity. Now to put it in that perspective, it usually sits around 82% going into winter. Uh, so 65% is quite low. 
So with the forecast of uh, colder weather and a very uh, cold winter, uh, these uh, carbon markets are getting very, very dangerous. Um, also, on top of that, this the, market, the carbon market, especially in the EUA market, is should really be a market for the uh, generation companies and the retailers to to allocate uh, allowances for their requirements. Now, about fifty five percent, I believe, of the allocations do go to these uh, retailers and generation companies throughout Europe. Now, what's happened is a lot of the market has actually now become more of a speculators' market, and we can see that in the open interest in the uh, European options on the EUAs. And I was just checking the uh, 100 euro strike price, and that has an open interest of 40 million tons. 40 million tons. So you can see that from that, that the speculation in the market is starting to drive it and maybe wants to see that that euro uh, that EUA price hit that 100 euros a ton. Um, and on Monday, for example, like some 31 million uh, contracts were traded alone in the EUA markets has become a very, very liquid market. Uh, it's, uh, and ev- the whole world is actually looking at it. Now, I'm, I've had inquiries from even Asia about how to trade EUA contracts. So it's getting that big. He also spoke more about the emerging voluntary carbon market. The voluntary market is a quite a, a new market and uh, it's, it affects every, every business in its, uh, in its own special way. Uh, the, the market is, is slowly evolving. Uh, it, was, it was a very small market only six months ago and now this year will crack 1 billion US dollars as a market. So that's quite significant. Um, the launch this year we had of the CME NGO contract, which is a nature-based contract, uh, also gave the gave the ability for more transparency in the market. So it gives more participants, especially like uh, for example, for banks, an, an, an ability to mark to market their positions and have like an index we actually we can refer to. So before the market was obviously less transparent. It was an OTC market. Um, people didn't know what true value was. I mean, when you give one voluntary carbon. Uh, project out of Indonesia versus a project out of uh, Africa. Why is there a price differential? Um, now the market is sort of maturing. Uh, we have we've got indexes that have been uh, listed by Platts. We have the uh, futures contract as well on CME. It's given that identity to the market where we can actually now refer to say, okay, well, a nature-based contract is worth some is worth fourteen dollars. So therefore, my OTC uh, project in Indonesia that's a a forestry project with a certain amount of SDGs, the value is around that $14 mark. So that gives more confidence to the market to actually enter the market and uh, and purchase what their requirements. So our, our inquiries are coming from a number of different types of industries, which is quite interesting because uh, traditionally we are a shipping and ferris-based client um, clientele. And now we're, we're getting in, uh, inquiries from... Uh, energy retailers, getting uh, from manufacturing, getting uh, inquiries from hedge funds, getting inquiries from all these different types of industries. It's going to, which shows that this mar- the voluntary market is truly a global market. And as we, as you, we're seeing like in the news, or we're seeing uh, on commercials, or we're seeing at our football stadiums, or everywhere we basically look, it's all about carbon, carbon, carbon. So it's becoming a lot more interesting, and there's a lot more inquiries about understanding this market and getting to to appreciate that. This is here to stay, and uh, understanding this, and and you and uh, and having the capability to actually manage 
your portfolio in this area is a huge advantage. And that's a wrap for 2021 and the freight and commodity markets. You've been listening to FIS's Freight and Commodity Podcast. To all those listening, I wish you a happy end of the year. Thank you to all my guests this week and special thanks to Emma Feng and Paul Conway. See you next year.